It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 67, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Peter Seeley. Peter and his wife, Bernadette, began farming at Springdale Farm in 1988 at the dawn of the CSA movement in the upper Midwest. Over 25 years, the farm has expanded to 20 acres and 800 CSA shares, plus 13 greenhouses and five children, all located not far from Lake Michigan in Plymouth, Wisconsin. Peter tells the story of Springdale Farms' founding and growth and how he and Bernadette navigated the challenges of the new CSA market back in 1988, including the reasoning behind their decisions about core groups and distribution models that were different from the way most CSAs were operating at that time. We learn how Peter has met the challenges of farming in extremely rocky soils head-on, including the strategies he's developed for machinery and fertility to succeed in that challenging environment. And Peter shares the farm's strategies for managing four-season production and storage, including the very low-tech way they got started in doing their root storage. Springdale farmers worked hard from the start to provide an alternative to fossil fuels for powering the farm, and Peter shares what they've learned about outdoor wood boilers and electric tractors and carts. Along the way, Peter consistently shares the passion he brings to the farm and to his life, and even brings Marx, Hegel, and Plato into the conversation. One more thing about Peter. Like so many farmers who have shared their time and talents with the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Peter doesn't think twice about helping other farmers and farms in our movement. I was reminded of this when a beginning farmer client posted a short note about Peter buying in bulk to get bulk pricing and save on shipping and then distributing to neighboring small farms. I've done this and it takes time and it takes planning. And when you make your living in a community where we all do better, when we all do better, it just makes sense. So a big, huge hat tip to everybody out there who's helping their neighbor by helping out with logistics, buying in bulk, presenting at a workshop, serving on a board, or coming on the Farmer to Farmer podcast, or just getting up and going to work every day. Here's to you. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Peter Seeley, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much for making time on a May afternoon in Wisconsin. It's, it's not exactly prime time to be recording podcasts if you're a farmer. Yeah, but we got a good crew out there, so I think everything's in good shape. So, Peter, I thought it'd be nice if we could start off by having you tell us about your farm, how you and Bernadette came to Springdale Farm, and and what your farm looks like now. Sure. We started this farm in 1988. Neither myself nor Bernadette, my wife, uh, came from a farming background. I grew up in suburban New York City, and she grew up in the Netherlands. Um we, I went to a regular liberal arts school, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, thinking I'd do something with business or accounting or finance. I loved numbers. I was a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, I took a year off after one year, worked making sure that I wanted to go into those worlds. I worked for half a year in the international department of a bank, um, but pretty much got turned off by that whole world of, of finance, everything revolving around money, 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 um, being inside an office all day. Um, I went back to school, ended up taking courses that I was interested in, not thinking about a specific career. I ended up with a degree in philosophy, did work in sociology and religion as well. Um, but I started to get interested in nutrition at the time, started to read some Adele Davis and books, um, seeing the connection between what we eat and our health. 
after I graduated, I decided to teach at a Quaker high school in Iowa. One of the things that was unique about this school, Scatter Good Friends School, was because they had a farm and a garden as part of their program for the kids. So the kids actually did work, um, and that seemed really unique. I had already begun to get more interested in food production, um, so to be connected with a garden and stuff was kind of fun. Bernadette, on the other hand, came from Holland looking to do something outside of her country, and uh, she had a friend that had gone to this school, and the school was very small. It was a high school prep school, but they only had 50 students. They didn't have any phys ed program with the school at the time, so her friend told her, well, just write the director, tell him you'll set up a phys ed program. That was her major in her college. Um, so she came to that school by that route, and I was a math teacher. Um, since I had still had enough math courses behind me so I could teach math, but then I also cooked breakfast, and I also attended the garden, and um, I was also the guidance counselor at that school. So we taught there for a couple of years, and we managed the garden there. We liked the gardening a lot. Um, the school was doing some really unique things, but I kind of wanted to see the school do even more radical things with, with high schoolers, with education. And since most of the other staff were pretty happy with how it was going, um, I was ready to move on, maybe try something else. We had gotten the gardening bug um, by that point. So we decided to take a tour of a lot of different farms just to see if people could make a living growing vegetables or fruit. And it was on that tour, this was 1986, I believe, um, we came across the very first CSAs that were in existence at the time. And I think there were five of them at the time. And so we visited Lincoln and Trouger Grow and visited uh, Robin Van Ann and John Vandertown Indian Line Farm. Went down to Barb and Kerry Sullivan in uh, Kimberton, Pennsylvania. Me and Nikki Robb uh, up in uh, Amherst, uh, Massachusetts there. Um, so we seemed uh, like when we started to figure out, you know, that we wanted to do this for a living, the CSA idea seemed like a really powerful idea. So, you know, we visited all of them that were in existence at the time, picked their brains about how they organized things and what they did. We also visited a bunch of farms and the Netherlands. At that point, Bruna and I were going to plan to stay together, and I wanted to see a little bit of her country, and so I learned Dutch, and um, we also did some farm tours over there to see what people were doing there. And so we came back, we left teaching, we decided to get one more year of um, experience. Uh, actually, I should back up. Uh, one of my summers, I worked at an organic vegetable farm in Maine, piecemeal farm, and uh, Enjoyed that experience quite a bit, too. We visited a bunch of different farms out there. Um, so I'd have that one season as well. So we were looking about where to start something up um, and get one more experience. We visited a bunch of farms. We stayed a week at each of them, and then we ended up with this farm in Missouri. The guy was selling at the Kansas City Farmer's Market, and he seemed to be pretty passionate about what he was doing, doing a good job. And uh, so from there, we got this invitation to use this land up at... Uh, up by Plymouth, where we are now, this high-wind organization that was founded on the inspiration of the Findhorn community in Scotland had bought this property, and they were looking for somebody to do something with sustainable agriculture. Um, we had seen enough that we know marketing was kind of half the ball game. so um, with Milwaukee an hour away from, from where this land is, we thought we'd uh, be able to grow something and sell something down there. 
And then we uh, said, hey, the CFA idea, you know, nobody's doing it here in the Midwest. Uh, let's just get the word out and see if we can try something out here. So that was our original inspiration. We got some notices up at some co-ops, some chiropractors' offices, a few timely newspaper articles. Um, at the time, we figured we wanted to do it full-time. We didn't want to have to, you know, work off the farm and to support this hobby of ours. So we kind of figured out what numbers, you know, what would it take to pay our expenses and, and to make it a going operation. Uh, we figured it would take three or four years, five years possibly, before we could break even. And uh, that's pretty much turned out. We had about 45 members our first year. Um, at that point, we didn't have kids. Well, we actually had one one child with us. And then we also didn't have any equipment at all. And as those things started to materialize, in case of kids, or we realized, holy cow, there's equipment out here that can help us do a better job, much more efficiently. Those things cost all money, so we quickly revamped our numbers of what we needed to make the farm pay. Um, in the early years, too, we, we did a fairly good job, I think. Uh, even though our 88, our first year was a drought year in the Midwest, it was brutal. We had... Uh, Something like 30 days over 90 degrees that summer, which for the upper Midwest is a lot. I know folks maybe down in Arkansas or something. They have twice that many days over 90. But um, This is Wisconsin, and yeah, right. and, and not southern Wisconsin either. You guys are pretty close to the lake, right? Yeah, we are in a different belt here. Yep. We also uh, had just come from Missouri, though, that one season down there. Um, and we were irrigating there all the time, so we came here kind of get set up to irrigate. So that was a good decision because that first year we did have to irrigate a lot. The other thing with our farm here is that we're in the Kettle Moraines, which is a unique geological area that glaciers came through, and it's it's really rocky, gravelly soil. So we don't have a good garden soil to start with. Um, as a gravel subsoil, of course, we don't have worries about flooding, but we do have worries about stuff drying out so quickly, as well as just getting stuff to grow because there's hardly any organic matter uh, in our soil to start with. Well, right, because so I, I actually remember this when I came to visit your farm. I, I was shocked by just how many rocks there were out in the field. Yeah, there's some times where I think we've harvested more rocks than we have uh, produce off the field. <laughs> um, after a couple of years, you know, we got to thinking, hey, if we're going to try and make our living on 10 or 20 acres or something, we might as well go look for, you know, some really decent soil. And there's some good soil up here in Wisconsin, not too far from us, either going east or west. Um, so we looked around, and, uh, you know, farmers don't sell their best land usually. Um, or if you do have some good land that is for sale, it's often in the middle of a field with, like, that conventional farmers, you know, right next to you. And where we are, it's a nice pocket. We have a valley here. We have no neighboring farmers. Um so after being unsuccessful finding new land, we said, hey, this is beautiful here. Let's just make this work. Um, and so we've, you know, continued to make tons and tons of compost and put improvements into the, both the soil and the building so that we can keep doing it here. So over the early years, yeah, our CSA just gradually grew. We had a waiting list actually every year for the first 27 years. Actually, last year was the first year that we weren't full at the beginning of the season. Um so it was easy for us to just take on proportionally 10, 20% growth. Um, people paying in front in the season, you know, that's a great idea for the CSA, and that's been really helpful to us. And so we just gradually upped our numbers uh, over the years. 
we did take a break after 12 years, so in year 2000. By then, we had three kids. When I was growing up, my father was able to have us live in the Philippines and Korea for half a year each. And that was really uh, important for me to see some other parts of the world and what how other people organize their lives and their different cultures and languages and food and everything. So I kind of wanted to do the same thing for my kids. But with uh, Bernadette being Dutch and we hadn't spent much time there, the obvious choice was to go to Holland for a year. So that's what we did after our first 12 years. And we had the kids uh, in school there and we did a lot of traveling in all their uh, vacation times through the rest of Europe. Um, so did you guys just suspend operation of the CSA that year? We did. We just told people, hey, this is what we want to do. And uh, there were a few other CSAs around, and a bunch of them did join them. Um, we did have an intern work some of the land here. Um, so some things were carried on. But our CSA did get uh, just shut down for that season. Wow. And we kept touch with our members once or twice. We sent some postcards from places. Um Another reason, though, was by then we have about a 20-acre parcel here at the, at the home farm. And by then we had been using it pretty intensively year after year. And I just figured, boy, we should really rest this land for a year. Um, so that was another reason we put it all in cover crops and got away. But then we came back and we just started doing the same thing. We are just using all the acres and letting the numbers grow. Um Gradually, I'm not sure we had then 200 or 300. Um, now, just to quickly bring up today, we've had 800 for a few years now, and that seems to be a plateau. It's kind of comfortable, given our greenhouses, our coolers, our packing shed, our delivery route. You know, everything is pretty much maxed out for those numbers. Um, so we've been, kind of been there for a couple of years now. Just on those 20 acres then, or have you guys expanded to any additional farmland? Well, we did. We started renting some local land, and that was always a pain. Um, whether it's irrigation or deer control, we're just on the edge of the kettle. We have a state forest just close to us, so there's just deer roaming all the time. A long-term you know, use of the land, building it up and stuff, so... Um, we kind of gave up on that, but then we started saying, hey, other people can do a better job with potatoes, for example. Why are we trying to grow everything? You know, when they can do a better job, they can do a cheaper and better product, and we can support them. Um, so we did start to bring in a few other growers. Um, so we've had three to five other growers putting in a total of, let's say, five to 20 acres, maybe, of assorted crops that didn't do well. Sweet potatoes was one, for example. If it's kind of cold here, we just don't get a good crop that year. And uh, other guys around that have a little more heat units uh, can do that better. So some of the winter squash, some of the crops that take more uh, acreage, you know, we, we let those get farmed out. Um, right. And overall, that's worked out pretty good. There's there's a couple things that we just buy from other places, like mushrooms is an organic mushroom place just 10 miles down the road from us. We get their mushroom compost as part of our compost when they're done with our early boxes, you know, sometimes didn't have quite as many items, so we would buy a few things like that and include them in our boxes. And I thought that uh, people would appreciate that, even if it wasn't from our farm. We get some syrup down the road from us, too. So I'd say 90 you know, percent of everything was from our farm. We did bring in some stuff from some other places. Now, is the CSA the only way that you're selling your produce, or do you guys have other outlets as well? Well, for a long, long time, that's that's the only uh, avenue that we pursued that was enough for us. Um, 
once in a while when we had extras, we'd go to a farmer's market in the summer. And since we did have some interns or apprentices, um, that was always a good experience for them so they can get immediate feedback on what, you know, what people like, what people will spend money on, you know, that there's a direct relationship between this stuff that we're growing and people willing to pay for it. Um, one of the big co-ops in Milwaukee, the Outpost, they were a pickup site for us for a long time, and that was really convenient. So if we had extras, you know, we would just sell them to them at a, at a reasonable cost. Um, but definitely the CSA was, was um, the bulk of it for maybe the first, you know, two decades, 20, 25 years. More recently now, we've added some other markets. It seemed to be a good decision for a number of uh, reasons. Um we had started adding hoop houses because tomatoes just grew better in them. It was just, this is where you grow tomatoes. You grow inside, you get higher yield, you get higher quality. Um, you can do some of your pruning and suckering, you know, in April um, when you're not busy in the field yet. Um, we were limited on our acres anyway, so if we can get more square foot yields, you know, that's the thing to do. So we ended up getting, uh, buying a bunch of used greenhouses. And um, so as those went up, we had the option, you know, to then use them in the winter too. So we started to do that. We also wanted to keep some employees in the winter because um, they wanted uh, more year-round work, not just seasonal work. Right. And it was another challenge too. Let's see what we can do to get things to grow in the in the winter. Um, we kind of gotten some systems down for irrigation, for fertility, for weed control, for transplanting, post-harvest handling. And that was going pretty well to CSA, but then this is the idea, hey, let's see what we can do in the winter. And, of course, by then, some others were doing the same thing also. Um, what kinds of crops are you guys growing in the winter? Are you doing the salad greens and spinach, or are you focusing on some of the larger things like the you know, the head lettuces, the kales, the Swiss chards? We pretty much do everything. In the winter, we don't have a winter CSA at this point. In the beginning, I wasn't sure exactly what I could promise people. Um, so it's hesitant to say, you know, this is what you're going to get. The other thing is some of our pickup sites are just garages. And here in Wisconsin, it freezes hard in, in January. And uh, actually, initially, you know, we thought we were going to go year-round CSA. And so we were planning on that. And in our first years, you know, we would dig, uh, before we had a big cooler, we dug a big hole in the ground and stored um, potatoes and carrots, stuff in the ground. And we had first... Um, Early on, we had deliveries in February and March still, um, but then out of the out of a hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah. This is when we didn't have any infrastructure here at the farm at all. So tell me a little bit more about how you. I mean, I I know this is a little bit of a sidebar here, but I'm kind of curious because it would have never occurred to me as a farmer to be like, I mean, even though it's obvious, right? What's a root cellar? Is a hole in the ground, but to just dig a hole in the ground. How did what did you well, guys do? You know, we came across that a few places. Well, in Holland, for example, they store a bunch of their fodder beets. They just store them outside. In Holland, it's it's cool. It doesn't freeze so hard. Um, so they can do that. And it's moist and humid there. Um, Ruth Sineker was is not too far from us. We we um, She was burying some of her beets and stuff in the ground. And somewhere it came across other guys that had been doing that. So it seemed like, great, hey, let's try it. Uh, but, of course, that got old pretty quickly, and all we had to do was erect a few walking coolers to do a much better job with that. But in the beginning, too, that like the winter, it was nice to take time off. Um, because you work so hard in the summer, you know, you look forward to that. Um, but then we got to the point, no, we really want, want to uh, 
you know, have stuff in the winter. Um, so that we, well, the other thing is, uh, the farmers markets too. That's one of our main outlets. We have winter farmers markets here and, uh, to have a nice stand of the market, you kind of want a little bit of everything. So, so the winter growing would involve the spinach and the greens, but also some carrots some leeks, some kale, chard. Um, some of our greenhouses we had set up to, uh, heat as well. And so we had done that for a number of years. Um, we got some big boilers that we set up in our shop and then we can pump that hot water all over the farm to keep, keep the greenhouses and the house and everything else going. So when you're using a, when you're using a boiler when, and a hot water system to heat crops, where is that heat going? Are you, are, do you actually have pipes laying in the soil? Um, we did bury them in our, all over the farm. So they're buried in a greenhouse. There's a couple of different ways. One is to bury the actual pipe. So we have some, they're buried, let's say, eight inches down, some pecs doing that eventually makes its way up and keeps, um, keeps a fair amount of heat. It's, it's not like you're growing tomatoes, of course, in the winter. You're just keeping the temperature above freezing. And you have internal structures, too, in the greenhouse so that you're only heating, you know, a top foot or two feet or so instead of a 10 or 12 feet high greenhouse. We also right. have thin tubing that would just lay right alongside the crops. So, for example... If we want to get early tomatoes, and that was kind of a thing that we had early on, um, we'd want to have tomatoes with our first box in June, our first or second week of June, so we'd have them started real early. Um, but that's been tubing right alongside the crop, and again, that small hoop over those is enough to keep the tomatoes, you know, above 40 or so. And that fin tubing has like a, it's like a tube, and then and then like every quarter inch or half inch, there's just a a a thin piece of metal, usually like in a square, right? So that it's got yeah. a basically radiating off of that. Yeah, there are a couple of styles of that. Um, it's usually aluminum too, so it's pretty okay. lightweight. There's other fin tubing that, that doesn't have every inch. It only has a couple of fins running the whole length of it. Um, so it's much simpler. You get less BTUs coming out of it, but uh, it's pretty lightweight, so we can um, you know, move it around pretty easily. We also, you know, I, <clears throat> I said I went to Holland for a year, and uh, right. yeah, and I went there for my kids' sake. But when I was over there, uh, I I started working at a few different places. And then after a while, you know, I was in one greenhouse operation where they just did tomatoes and cucumbers, two crops. And you just spend all day, you know, suckering or pruning or or harvesting. And it gets kind of boring. You kind of know the system. So after a while, I was looking around to see what else. And at the time, the dollar was really low compared to the Dutch. Uh, Gilder it was. And so equipment, in, in general, the Dutch are kind of like the Swiss or the Germans, you know, something was 10 years old, it's time to get rid of it, put something new around. <laughs> so there was all this equipment that was really right for our size operation, you know, 10 to 30 acres. Um, so we ended up buying a lot of equipment. We had three containers of uh, equipment that we bought and brought it over and then uh, trying things out and then uh, selling them if they didn't work for us. One of the things I brought over that made me think of this was um, we brought over some pipe. Over there, they have hot water running through pipes and greenhouses, and then they have these carts that go on the pipes. So you can slide down while you're working on something and put a seat on the cart, you know, and then you can do your, your suckering or harvesting and stack up crates. And that seemed like fun. So I had these containers full of big equipment, but I could use a lot of room along the floor of the container, so I bought all these pipes over, because uh, they were so cheap, and weight-wise, it wasn't going to add that much to the container, so so then I started to set those up, too, um, 
in one of our greenhouses so we could have a hot water and have these carts run through. Now, though, we don't do as much winter growing with that heat. I mean, if we used all these boilers that we have, you know, Sheboygan County would start looking like, like Kansas. I mean, we would just burn so much wood that uh, we've kind of scaled back on that a little bit. So you're burning wood in the boilers. Are you guys cutting that yourselves, or is that something you're buying in? We did early on when I had time to do that, but now we just uh, barter or buy it in. Um, there's a few scrap places around we can get stuff uh we don't own a lot of woods ourselves, um, but yeah, there are operations. I mean, there's enough woods around here in Wisconsin that it's relatively easy to come by. So, so we do heat our whole farm with, with that. We we kind of wanted to be an alternative to, to the fossil fuel industry. You know, by then my environmental thinking was such that you know we need to figure out how to live and grow and distribute food. You know, without relying on fossil fuel so much. So. We had our standard LP heater for our greenhouse that was busy early on, just between, let's say, February and May. But I was still spending what seemed like an astronomical amount of money on that. You know, it was maybe $700 or something. And I thought, boy, there's got to be a better way to heat the greenhouse. And, of course, one thing was, was the choice of fuel, and the other is where you distribute the heat. You know, the standard practice of blowing the heat up top in the greenhouse, relatively inefficient. Um, we put all our heating tubes here right under the benches, so it'll be a little more efficient that way. I remember seeing when I visited your farm that you had the fin tubing running underneath the benches, and then you guys would actually build small interior tunnels over the top of the benches as well to keep things to keep those transplants warm. Yeah, and we still use that in the winter for the winter greens, you know, for microgreens, that type of thing. That, that works out really good. The boilers that you have, I mean, they're, they're wood boilers. Are there differences between wood boilers? I mean, it seems like you put a lot of, of energy into optimizing your equipment. Have you found that there are certain things about wood boilers for heating greenhouses that work better than others? Yeah, we had the learning curve was steep, though. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. When we decided to put in one of these boilers, we had a guy help us out, and he also installed solar panels and wind turbines. So we thought, you know, he was pretty cognizant of, of alternative energy and how to best do it. Um, but he ended up giving us a, one of these outdoor boilers that are very simple in design, um, cheaper, but incredibly inefficient and, and polluting. Most of these wood-fired boilers, these outdoor boilers that you see out there, they're the boxes, um, just a big square box. You put your wood in, you burn. A lot of the heat just goes up the chimney that's in the back of it, so you're not getting all the heat that you could be getting out of it. And then they also have thermostats that when you have enough hot water made ready to go, the thermostat shuts the air intake and then the fire basically smolders because it doesn't have enough air for all the fuel that's in it. And that smoldering gives off a lot of smoke and it also has lost BTUs. So it's not only polluting, but you're also you know losing a lot of potential energy. And so... A couple of years after we had installed that system, it was working okay, but we didn't realize all of these ins and outs of it. A guy came to our farm to do an energy audit, and he looked over and he saw this outdoor wood boiler, and he said, oh, by the way, that thing is a piece of junk. And I said, what? We just spent all this money and have pipes all over our farm, you know, to to get that to work for us. And he started explaining to me how, you know, the combustion doesn't work and and so we thought, okay, you know, what are we going to do now? Well, let's do our research so that if we ever 
change this boiler out. You know, we know what we need to get. So I started doing more research on them, and I found a couple of companies that made some efficient boilers. One was in Minnesota, and the other was over in Finland or Sweden or something like that. And uh, I started to call up some of the guys that had them just to ask them, you know, exactly how well they work and if they're happy with them. One camp that I called in Minnesota um, had about 13 of them, and they had them to heat their dormitories, their gymnasium, their office buildings, everything. The whole camp was run on them. And I said, well, you guys must be pretty convinced they work well. And he said, yeah, they, they work great. And by the way, we're getting rid of a bunch of them. They were getting a little bit older, and they had lost their contract with the city, the Twin Cities, where they brought kids out from those cities. And the kids did most of the work, both cutting the firewood and then feed the boilers. <laughs> and they weren't going to pay their maintenance and then, you know, regular salaries to go out and chop wood and, and feed boilers. So, so it was a good right. opportunity. I picked up five of them. And then, uh, yeah, they work much better. They uh, they have a much better uh, flue system so that the hot water, the hot air from the combustion chambers goes through the tank a bunch of times. It's got two combustion chambers, so they get really hot, so a lot of the gases get burnt off. Um, so those are the ones we finally got installed and and what we're using now. Is there but, a brand name that you could mention for that? Yeah, sure. The, the, the GARN is the unit that we are using now, G-A-R-N. And they come out of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and they're they're certified. Uh, they get it all tested with the EPA. I mean, a number of years ago, I know the state of Vermont was planning on banning a bunch of these outdoor units because they just give off so much smoke and they just settle in the valley. Um, but this is a much better unit, so uh, so it's worth the extra cost. Um, yeah, if you're in an area that has enough. Uh, fuel with the burn, it's it's great. Uh, that's great not to have to rely on any kind of LP or natural gas or whatever. Now you've done some other alternative energy work on your farm as well, right? You guys have solar panels on the barn. I know you run a bunch of of, uh, of electric carts around the, the operation. Yeah, a couple of years ago we did get uh, um, six point three kW system on our barn. There were some grants so that made it so that even financially it was it was almost a good deal to do to say nothing about environmentally. At that point we ran about a third or forty percent of our farm on those panels. Now we're much bigger, so it's a smaller percentage. Um and then we did switch over tractors to electric. Uh so we have three of them now and each one is kind of a step up. We started with a G like a lot of people have the Alzheimer's D. And that worked uh, fine, but then we did a case VAC that's got a three-point. Of course, the G doesn't have much of a three-point. It doesn't have that much power, so it's pretty limited in its application. And the latest one we did is a Ford 8N. It's a full 120-volt system, uh, so it's got a lot of storage um, capacity. And, of course, the three-point, we can put more implements on it. So that's been fun. It's taken a lot of time and energy to... uh, make those things work. You know, there's nothing off the shelf that uh, was there to, to go by. A couple of these we had shop classes in high school work on. All right. You know, we do use these uh, carry-all two electric carts for basically uh, glorified golf carts um, for hauling stuff in and out of the field. They're very simple. Most people can use them and you can uh, fit a lot of weight on them. The ones we have now are heavy duty, so you can put a thousand pounds on them. Um, so we like... Uh, both the quietness and uh, me not being a mechanic, I get tired of working on carburetors or gas engines. So it's nice, nice to have something <laughs> where we can listen to the birds and the wind uh, 
during the day instead of a, a diesel or gas engine. So I think the, the electric tractor is kind of interesting that that's coming up again. We did an interview recently with Laura Frericks from Loon Organics in Minnesota, and they, they've they got, I think, three uh, electric tractors on their farm as well. So I think that's kind of kind of an interesting uh, theme that we're starting to see on on farms. The Have you found any drawbacks with the electric equipment? Um, there is potentially danger with them as, as there would be for a gas engine, but, uh, yeah, the voltage is, is high. Um, we've never had any accident, but, but you need to have people that are, you know, either everything totally shielded and, you know, kept in, in good cables and whatnot. Um, the, the run time, of course, you know, when batteries run out, you have to, you can't just pour gas in and get them to go again. So you got to make sure that whatever you're doing, you know, you're not going to stop in the middle of the, of the day. There's a certain amount of technical expertise you need to know, um, except for these electric golf carts. Those are pretty simple. But once you start custom making equipment, you know, it's it's not as user friendly. So you're limited in how many people can, can jump on there and get stuff done. So there's some drawbacks. One advantage is um, you can all have go as fast or as slow as you want. You know, they're, you just gear the motors down, put the throttle down so you can just crawl. So for any kind of application where you want smaller um, speeds, then it's really versatile for that. You can also, sometimes when you uh, got an operation in the field where you need to move the tractor forward a little bit, you're harvesting or something, um, it's really handy. You don't have to start an engine again. You know, you just crawl forward a little bit. Um, there's again, there's there's just like when when I first did the G1, I wasn't I couldn't find a small hydraulic pump electrically activated. So I think the one I ended up buying was one that a truck would use for picking up a blade, a snow blade. And of course, this thing was way overkill for our little G. So when we turn the pump on, like it'll throw stuff up. I mean, it'll raise it up so quickly. You got to be careful <laughs> that you can make right. it throw something up to the sky. Um, but in general, the electric, I mean, they've, they've figured out a lot of things. So, you know, you can do just about anything. I do have a real appreciation though, for how much energy there is in a gallon of diesel or a gallon of gasoline. It's amazing how much, you know, work you can get out of a gallon of, of fossil fuel. Um, cause the equivalent in batteries, um, they weigh a lot and they just don't get as much done. And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever have large tractors with, you know, huge batteries. It's just, uh. It seems to be more set up for a smaller operation, a smaller tractor. What kind of jobs besides besides cultivating, obviously, with the G, but what kind of jobs are you guys doing with that Case VAC and that Ford 8N? Um, a lot of our tractors end up having an implement on them, so you don't have to switch all the time. Um, on our vac, we've got our Sutton Cedar, it's a 20 row Cedar that we'll seed salad mix with. Um, on the front of that, um, I did put LSG fittings for the belly mount so that I can throw on any kind of a cultivator on the front of that. In fact, we've done the same thing with our uh, Farmall Cs too. We've had Gs for a number of years, but um, as people know, they're just the original 10 or 11 horse continental engine or whatever. It's just not very powerful. There's not much work you can do. So we've gone to some of our bigger cultivating tractors or all the formal Cs. But in the front of those, sometimes I put the G uh, mounts too, since I have all this G 
maintenance equipment we use that there too. Um, what other things we use? Sometimes harvesting, you know, if you're just pulling a trailer, it's handy to to do. Um, okay. Some transplanting. Um, if you don't have a huge, heavy 3.1, you know, a lighter one or or one that's on a, uh, it's got a ram for lifting it up at the end of the rows, um, those tractors could do those too. We do have working PTOs on them and haven't done too much with it. I mean, we can put a mower on or some, or a small tiller on the Ford now. Um, so it's oh, really? exciting to, uh, to try that out. But now our farm is, is gotten so much bigger that, uh, you know, I was hoping at one point to have only electric tractors on our farm. Um, but unfortunately that's probably not going to happen. We're, we just have more acres now to, to work. I got to know you because sometime it must've been at the 2001 Moses organic farming conference. I took a flyer off the, off the bulletin board there when we were cleaning up at the end of the show where you were advertising a soil block maker uh, that you had brought over from Holland uh, probably came over when you, when you brought stuff home from, from your year off. And it was really clear to me when I, when I visited the farm that you guys were doing a lot of really good stuff with transplant production. And at that point you were using soil blocks, I think almost exclusively on the farm. Are you guys still doing soil blocks? Yeah, we ended up not uh, using soil blocks anymore for the usual reasons. I think that people stop using them. Um, one is they just take a lot of potting mix. Um, they're very heavy. They take up a lot of room in the greenhouse. Transplanting the blocks doesn't go quite as smoothly as transplanting, you know, a regular cell type that's narrow pointed. Um, the plants themselves are the best. Um, they're just beautiful transplants. They do a great job. Since we had the machines to actually make them out and actually machine to transplant them too. We were set up that way to do it, but uh, it still seemed like overall people were using plugs and they were successful with it. And you could get by with a lot less mix and a lot lighter flats and easier transplanting. So, so we ended up doing that. Um, so we no longer use the blocks, although, you know, it is a great system. And Holland, uh, you know, a lot of farms there use blocks, and they have equipment, transplanters, you know, that are set up just for, for blocks, too. Um, so it's still a pretty common thing over there. But here, uh, we went with the plugs. What kind of plug trays have you guys gone to after so many years with the soil blocks? Uh, we really disliked the flimsy black plastic ones, so we started to look for alternatives, and now we have a you know, three different kinds of the hard plastic ones. We have plastomers, we have the wind strips, and uh, something else. We have had speedlings in the past, uh, so we kind of have a, a little collection of a different, few different kinds. Most of like the hard plastic ones, um, they will last forever. Yeah, I mean, you could, I think you can even drive a tractor on top of them, and they, they survive. Yeah, we drive over ours with a skid loader occasionally by mistake. <laughs> we can still use them. And are, are you guys making your own soil mix, or is that something you're buying in? Early on, like like many farms, you just want to do everything yourself, and we are guilty of that same attitude. Um, saving money, of course. Um, so we made our own mix, we made our own compost. We did a good job with the compost, um, and then added some pea moss and vermiculite. And then and we also had an old guy living on our farm. Um, he had been probably the last farmer in this county to use horses. He was like from another century. And he didn't want to move into town when he sold his farm. And some friends of ours said, hey, maybe this guy can live on your farm. So so he lived with us for eight or ten years until he died. But he would spend pretty much the month of January just sifting compost and 
making a mix, and that, that worked out pretty well. Then the one year, there was an operation south of Milwaukee, greenhouse operation. Um, Dad had built it up over the years, selling bedding plants to Walmart and everybody. They had four acres undercover, and the three sons kind of, I guess, didn't quite make a go of it, and so it was going out of business. And uh, so a bunch of their hoop houses were available, and I ended up uh, picking up about an acre of them. And I had to take them all down, though, so that took me about a year and a half. But I spent all that winter um, going back and forth, taking down the greenhouses, and I wasn't making potting mix. And so we ended up buying some from from Carl. And sure enough, you know, we've never made our own mix since then. Vermont compost, potting mixes, does an excellent job. Um, once in a while, we'd make a bad batch. You know, we'd have something go wrong. And uh, as any grower knows, you know, you need to... Make sure your plants are good if you're going to get good yields, good quality. So, so we've gone to bringing Carl's mix over here to the Midwest. Um, there's a few companies out here in the Midwest that are trying to make it. We always give them a shot and try them and see how well it does. And uh, at this point, we're still going with Vermont compost, but someday we may either make our own or get it locally again. What else have you found to be key for growing great transplants? Yeah, greenhouse management, that's that's crucial. You know, not too much water, not too little water, good ventilation. Um, it's kind of an easy thing. You visit a farm and everything looks good, and you think there's not much to it. Um, but, uh, and, and it is rather, rather simple. You know, most seeds germinate pretty well. You can control your temperature. Um, then you can... Uh, you can do a good job, but there are a lot of things that can go wrong, whether it's, you know, the funguses, the molds, the too wet. Yeah, just an eye on the detail, I guess, that then you usually come out okay. Now, one of the other things I remember seeing in your greenhouses that I thought was, was very interesting were these, I think you called them stretchers that you used for being able to move a large number of flats at one time, basically having folks pick up you know, like like you would for a like you would for a stretcher, one person at each end, and then carrying a bunch of flats at one. Those were your benches as well. Are you still using that system? Yeah, that worked good for a while. Um, and I'm trying to think of why exactly we stopped using them. Um, now we pretty much throw the flats in black crates that can stack up. Uh, well, the other thing we did in our new transplant greenhouse. We built another one when our size kept, you know, necessitating more greenhouses. Um, the place that I was buying stuff used from in Milwaukee had a monorail system in their greenhouses. And as, since I was buying the whole thing, I took it down. It's something that's pretty expensive. I wouldn't buy it new. It wouldn't be the first thing I would buy. But since we have it there, we have that set up in there, too. So now whenever we need to move flats around, we can put them on a monorail and back our cart up to the edge of it and load up right there. So I guess that's kind of replaced those those stretchers that we liked for, for a while. And are you hardening crops off outdoors? Some. Um, one of our greenhouses, we can kind of let it open, pretty open on, on three sides. Um, so we don't do it as much as we used to. Uh, and the plants still seem to do okay. It's just one less step to have to do. Sometimes in the spring, of course, going from 
nice heated greenhouse to outside, you would benefit from hardening off. But uh, we haven't found that we need to do it as much as we used to. When you say you have a greenhouse that opens up on three sides, how does that work? I mean, probably a roll up on the on the two of the long sides. Is there a the short side then? How does that open up? Well, we have a big 18-foot door on it that can go totally up. And then sometimes we have the top, we can just take it off um, and then put it back on if it gets really, really cold um, or it's going to be really stormy and we want to protect the plants. You say you actually have the top that you can take off. Yeah, we end up not doing it as much, but I kind of wanted, since I didn't have bench space available outside, I wanted the ability to be able to do that. But practically, um, we don't really do that very often. With that, I'd like to take a short break here, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. I want to ask you about your equipment lineup, because I just think that's so interesting what you brought in from Holland and the kind of work that you've done around that. Sounds good. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food wastes to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort V mix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Whether you're looking for a rototiller, power harrow, rotary plow, flail mower, snow thrower, sickle bar mower, chipper, log splitter, or just about anything else, you can run it on a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. It's pretty cool. bcsamerica.com. All right, and we're back with Peter Seeley from Springdale Farm. So, Peter, like I mentioned earlier, I got to know you primarily through the this equipment avenue. And I think locally here in the Midwest, you're kind of known for for your work with different kinds of equipment and, and, and kind of trying to optimize things and and finding things that are that are really specific to to different tasks. I remember you showed me one time you had a, a Brussels sprout harvester. Um, you know, where you cut the stock off the off the plant and then shove it through this thing and it would pick all the Brussels sprouts off. And it's something that you don't seem afraid to experiment with and invest in different pieces of equipment in your operation. Yeah, we did find out early on that, that a good functioning tool pays for itself many times over. Um and then the question is, okay, which of the tools are the ones that you need for your operation? Which ones are going to work for you and which ones are not? And 
since I didn't come from a farming background, as I got exposed to something else, I'd say, oh, that's interesting. Let's try it out. Let's take it, take it out on the field and see what it does. Most of the time, of course, when you buy older, smaller equipment, you're not going to be putting out that much capital to get it to your farm. And then there's usually a market for it again if it turns out to be something that you're not going to use. So I didn't have to worry too much about trying things out. But um, but then, yeah, to figure out, okay, how well does this tool work for you? And uh, does it you know, fit your operation? There are some tools like, well, we got excited about the Yeoman Plow. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. It's a deep subsoiler. Um, you don't need as much horsepower to pull it as other subsoilers. By the way, it's designed. It cuts through the soil. It doesn't invert things that well. Um, right. It seemed like such a fantastic tool, so I had to get my hands on one, of course. And and then we used it on our farm some. But remember, again, that we're farming on gravel here, and we just don't have that much of a compaction problem to counteract. And when we pull through a plow through, we end up pulling up some big boulders. Um, so it's a tool that, for us, you know, didn't really fit our operation that well. Um, so it sits on the back lot and doesn't get used as much. Um, other tools, you know, that we've played with, you know, we I did the math. I was a math teacher, of course, remember. And when I figured out what a green bean harvester could do, how many pounds you could do per hour and how much we're paying our labor, you know, you could pencil it out. It paid for itself pretty quickly. Um, but in our operation, we just weren't doing the huge volume. We had, you know, CSA, large CSA, but it's not like we were wholesaling acres of beans. And to get the machine set up and to get it working, and our rows at that time were only 300 feet long, and some rows are 600, but, you know, you hardly get the machine working by the time you have to stop and turn around. So some right. of those, the same thing with the Scott Biner, the carrot harvester. Um, early on, too, we were really into getting the highest yield that we could get for our acreage. And if we can plant things at all closer together, then we start doing that. So we end up having, you know, all manner of row configurations, one row, two row, three row, four row, five row, seven row, um, just so we can squeeze the plants in. And of course, this bigger equipment can't handle small rows. With a green bean harvester too, um, by picking beans three times, you're getting the higher total yield than you would be for if you just go through once a machine. So we end up you know, making a lot of mistakes along the way and trying things out that this don't work. But but again, you get a good tool. Um, it's it's worth it's weight in gold. It's it'll pay for itself. So so we have always taken the attitude of let's try seeing if we can make this tool work for us. And uh, I mean, some tools like we had spading machines early on in our rocky soil. We broke at least two of them. Now we just destroyed <laughs> them, and then we realized, you know, this is not going to work. This took me a long time to learn that one. Um, until we finally got a really good EMON, it's a really heavy-duty one. But even now, though, we only use it in our greenhouses. We just don't take it out to the field because you're asking for trouble with it. So what do you do for tillage with all the rocks? I mean, and again, I, I just have to emphasize, I farmed in Maine for a couple of years, and I thought we had rocks. And then I came to your farm, and, I mean, you guys have rocks, you know, and, and they're all sizes, right? I mean, they're you have little ones, and you've got you know, six inches and, and eight inches in there as well as some, some larger pieces, right? Yeah, it just happened to be where we ended up. Uh, Wisconsin, of course, is not that way at all. 
altogether. It's beautiful soil in Wisconsin, but this particular place where we ended up, um, that's what we were blessed with. Um, we have gone with a uh, reverse-tined rototiller that will bury the rocks. In fact, it's sometimes called a stone barrier. Um, what we have is an ortofor. I know some other companies have made similar machines out there too, but I just highly recommend this to anybody that has somewhat stony soil because it'll go through and pick up the rocks and actually bury them underneath two to five inches of, of topsoil that you got left. So in the beginning, when you look out over a field, you know, you see rocks everywhere. After you make a pass with this, um, you've got a beautiful seed bed that you can plant, you know, carrots or lettuce mix or anything into. Um, so that's been, that's been big for us. How deeply does it bury the rocks? Four or five inches down. If I'm doing some cultivating with some deeper shanks, they'll start pulling them up again. And even sometimes two or three inches down, like the basket weeders will sometimes, the basket weeders will say, you know, you shouldn't use in rocky soil, and you shouldn't, because sometimes, you know, your rocks caught in there, and then they start plowing the soil and burying all your crop. But it's still a great tool, so we still use it. But sometimes even a basket weeder will pull them up a little bit. Um, but at least initially for the planting, maybe the first cultivation, you have a pretty decent soil. Um, most of the other equipment would pretty standard, the disc and the chisel, uh, various cultivating equipment. I do, we took some time off this winter with, with our kids still at home to go out to California. And it was a family trip. We didn't uh, do anything farming. We said, well, at least let me go to the Eco Farm Conference in Monterey. So so I was there. And one, one fellow was explaining his small farm uh, where he doesn't till at all. And then I have to blame you, Chris, for pointing me out to Patrice down there in uh, Arkansas or Missouri or somewhere down there who's doing the same thing. Not telling you now, I'm just so excited. I started to change some of my tractor configuration, my tire spacing, so I can take at least a few acres and and try, you know, not tilling the soil at all. Because I feel like over the years, we just, overall our yield and our quality have improved a lot. We put a lot of compost in and, and you know, things are working pretty well. But I still feel like we're just tilling too much. In the limited time, for example, that we get cover crops in, because i got to get something planted again pretty soon after that, um, you just till on the soil again, you know, without really letting cover crops do the ultimate, you know, soil regeneration that they can do. So more recently, I'm excited about uh, how we can implement some of the no-till strategies, but still use some of the equipment that we have and not bend over you know, on our backs, you know, we we don't want to do it our whole life work so hard. So if we can use some equipment, you know, that saves our backs, then that's, that's worth it. What kind of long-term strategies do you guys have? I mean, I know you're not a spring chicken anymore. You mentioned while we were chatting on break that, that you're getting up there towards the average age of farmers now. And, uh, but I mean, you've got a lot of years that you want to continue growing vegetables on this place. What's What's the long-term strategy for making sure that, that soil stays in shape? Yeah, to a certain extent, we kind of set out what we wanted to do. We wanted to pay for ourselves and grow food for Southeast Wisconsin people and train other people and use the CSA model. And, and to a certain extent, you know, after a couple of decades, we kind of did it and then what, what is next? What, what should we do? Um, so 
we had asked our neighbors a number of times if they had any land that we could rent or buy, and and at the time they they always declined. But then a couple of years ago, we did see a for sale sign on this property not too far from us, and there are not that many working farms right in our area. There's probably as many gravel pits as there are working farms. Um, but we immediately called a real estate agent uh, and said, hey, you know, the sign is for sale. What are they asking? What's the situation? And they said, well, this piece is for sale, and there's another little piece down the road, too. They're selling both. It's the same owner. And uh, it's somebody that we knew. We had bought some of their bird carvings. He was a wood carver. And uh, so we kind of asked him directly because, you know, we, we had asked him before, you know, why didn't you just come to us? And they said, well, we just wanted to go through a realtor that's more official. Um, so they, there was a 10-acre piece that was flat, nice soil, um, not as gravelly as our place. So to said, boy, let's at least get that one. And we don't really need another farm, another buildings. Um, but then there, you know, so they asked us a certain amount, and they said, okay, we'll buy it. Great, 10 acres. You know, we can afford that. And then uh, the realtor said, well, by the way, you may want to increase your offer because even though they listed it for that amount, other people are offering more. And so I said, oh, my, is that how it works? You can't just, you know, pay what they're asking. So then we thought about it, especially because the guy next door, the neighbor, he had just, his wife had just won the lottery with a bunch of Sargento employees and each won a million dollars. So we knew, and this guy was interested in some extra land, so we knew, you know, we were going to be bidding against this guy. But to make a long story short, the realtor said, well, make an offer on the farm too, and then they'll strengthen your bid on the other acreage. And uh, we made a real in a relatively low ball offer on the farm after doing some penciling, thinking we could, you know, make the payments on, on it all. And even though we really wanted only this 10 acre piece and, uh, immediately without any back offers or counter offers, they, the folks, um, they had known us and they kind of were happy to honor our commitment to soil stewardship and local foods. Uh, they accepted our offer on, on both of them. And so all of a sudden, holy cow, we're, now we got more acreage to, to use and play with. So along with that bigger acreage where we can use a better crop cover crop rotation, um, we started to look at other markets, to other wholesale markets, um, both going further away towards Chicago, um, becoming certified organic. We had never certified our farm before. With our CSA, people always could visit us and see what we did, and we never had a problem getting members for our CSA, so we never really troubled to get the certification but that's something we're likely to do now that's a lot of expansion and and you're talking about actually growing the size of your operation not just not just being able to farm more extensively or put more land into cover crops but actually to to increase your output to where you would need to be looking at other markets what's driving that is that a is that an economic decision on your part is that uh just a wanting to feed more people decision um there's a number of factors involved here. One is that we kind of want, if our kids, whoever, we have five kids now, three are up and out of the house, two are still younger. If one of them would want to be living with us, close to us, on any of our property, and now we have another property that it would be something that they could tap into. Um, another is the, the markets are kind of there for the taking, it seems. Like we're not really looking around too much. We just get calls from from institutions, from co-ops, from restaurants, you know, asking to get our stuff. Um, 
we do have employees. You know, for a while, it seemed like the CSA was enough. We, we make a living doing it. And, but then when we started to take employees and they wanted year-round work, um, that kind of changed things because we want to be able to pay, you know, relatively decent wages. For a while, I was thinking was, you know, why do we want to expand if we're just going to make more, you know, nine, ten, eleven dollar jobs, um, which are not really enough to live on. Um, but there are people that want those jobs, and if they have a spouse that, you know, makes the bulk of their income and they can work part time. Um, so we had the labor there. We've had always people, you know, looking for work. And we had the markets, and we had the equipment, and then we had financially. I think uh, you know it should, the numbers should work out. So everything was kind of in place. If anything was missing of all those things, then we probably wouldn't have made that jump. It's a challenge. Too. Sometimes you're ready for a new challenge. Um, the soil over there is a little different. The terrain. It's funny, just a half mile away, how different um, an operation can can be. Um, so it's kind of fun to have something new. Need to work on. Also, we had farmed out, you know, as I said before, some of our crops, and now we can bring them back, and we can we can do them here again, and do a little better job with them. Things like potatoes might make sense if if you're not farming rocks. Yeah, we look forward to, to doing that. Several acres of potatoes. Uh, um, now, is you guys are making your own compost now? still, right? You mentioned that was something you were doing in the early years. You've continued to do that, right? Yeah, we did find that we had to add significant amounts of things to get stuff to grow well. Um, and compost was the natural product. It was cheaper than any kind of bag fertilizer. Um, we're in dairy land here, so there is dairy manure available. There's also horse farms and um, some chicken manure, some mushroom compost, there's a variety of materials we can work with. Um, after a couple of years, having pretty good success, I still thought that we should be able to do better. Um, so I did take a course on composting with the Lipkis, who were Austrian farmers that had a following in Europe with their controlled microbial composting techniques and equipment. And uh, they came to the U.S. a few years, and uh, so they had a week-long composting courses available. So I took that, and, and that was really helpful. Then I can get a better idea of what exactly is good quality compost and how do you make it. Um, a lot of these things we can read about in books, and it's fairly simple, but um, to actually go you know, in-depth into it um, was really helpful to me. And then uh, so... We've continued to make compost, and that's the bulk of what we add to our soil to, to improve the soil and to maintain the fertility. And it is kind of neat over the years to see how the tilth has, has improved. Um, in the beginning, um, it was just difficult to, to break through um, and, and to keep stuff growing. Sometimes I talk with other growers and ask, you know, what, what do you apply to your land? And I say, what? That's all you do? And you get decent crops? Because for us, um, starting from the gravelly <laughs> soil, we we couldn't get by with just doing that that minimal amount of uh, fertilizing. It kind of forces you to learn learn more, I think, when you when you're working with less. Yeah, but then now starting with new acres, uh, <laughs> that's the problem. We're starting over again. 
we've got some trees we have to clear and we have, you know, a lot of minerals to put out there. And, um, in a way, uh, it's just kind of starting over again. What kind of tools are you using then for turning the compost? Do you guys have a compost turner? Yeah, we did, uh, early on get, get a compost turner, a windroller, you know, you'd take, you'd make the windrow and then the windrow would be turned by machine. We bought a self-propelled one that came out of Pennsylvania. Um, we passed that on when we wanted to something bigger. We found, uh, one here in Wisconsin that a mint grower had made from a hay sprayer and, uh, again, a self-propelled unit so we can, um, maximize our space. We don't need a lot of windrow uh, space aisles for, you know, for tractor drawn. We still use that. Uh, we also sometimes make, but that turner can't go through really tall piles though. So after we make some piles and have a good mixture, the compost turner does great in mixing equipment. Then we'll make one larger pile and let that sit for a while. We we'll use our skid loader to make that and then, uh, give that a few months sitting. All right. We played with, uh, some of the biodynamic preps, but at this time we're not uh, continuing with that. Uh, what's funny was that the uh, Lipkeys were also playing around with biodynamics and they weren't getting super great results um, with the preparations, but then they tried Pfeiffer's preparations. Pfeiffer, of course, was a German. He came to the U.S. and brought some of the biodynamic principles with him and then he carried on stuff here in the United States and uh, Pfeiffer was also a microbiologist, so he actually did a lot of tests to see exactly what was going on, you know, in the compost. But uh, when the Lipkeys brought some of the Pfeiffer's compost and BD preps back to Austria and used them, they got incredibly good uh, results. So they carried on uh, with using those preparations, and then they ended up making themselves on their place. That's something now that you've kind of backed off of. Is there a reason why you've stopped using them? Like, like any. Thing, you're kind of like the Masanobu Fukuoka, you know, is the best at it. What can you cut away? What can you, what can you stop doing? You know, so you're not doing so many things. Um, another example would be uh, the uh, stirring the compost tea maker. Um, we got excited because it seemed like that might solve some of the minor problems we had with some of our crops um, to make this, you know, biologically active compost tea. You know, following Elaine Engham and others that have shown that it can be really beneficial. In fact, the compost tea maker we bought came from a New York wine grape grower whose his pesticide bill was annually $60,000 or so. And just by spraying compost tea on his crops, still conventionally, he's not organic, um, but he could cut his bill down to 5000 or so a year. So it seems wow. like there's some things going on with compost tea that, that are really helpful. I'm hearing too that some of the big guys, Dole and others on you know, spraying compost tea over by airplane over huge acreages. Um, so we have one of those and used it for a while. And I'm not really sure how much it helped our operation. Sometimes things did really well, but I think they might have done well without it. So we let go of it in a while. And I guess the BD preps are, are the same thing. Um, we do try to inoculate piles with some old compost. Um, but whether we need, you know, extra things like that. I mean, that, that dialogue goes back way back between Ro Rodale, Robert Rodale and, and Pfeiffer. You know, Rodale was saying, hey, stuff will degrade naturally. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to add anything. But Pfeiffer was saying, well, actually, you can make things much go much more orderly and much better, you know, if you add some of the preps. So 
So I think that's a discussion that's been around a while, and, and they still carry on. Of course, it, it just depends on, on the situation, on the materials that you're using and what your end product is, what you need you know, to come up with. The biodynamics and the CSA movement were pretty closely intertwined when you guys were getting started back in 1988. Was was that part of why you were looking in that direction? Sure. As newcomers to farming, we were open to anything. And uh, yeah, I think four of those first five were, were heavily biodynamically and um, oriented. Um, I did take the course with uh, Podolinsky, Alex Podolinsky from Australia, who at the time, um, he was making as many preparations himself personally as the rest of the world, I think, combined, because he was making it for all 2 million acres or something in Australia that was under biodynamic management. And uh, he seemed to have a lot of interesting ideas and experience, you know, so I was happy to be able to study with him. With the Zinnikers right in our backyard, I had occasion, obviously, to ask them lots of questions, but, but Ruth a lot of time would say, well, you have to figure it out yourself, you know, it's not, and some of the biodynamic things are not that intuitive to me, you know, to bury horns or these kind of things and or hanging from a tree, you know, intuitively, you don't really come up with that, I think, although Steiner, I guess, did. Um, but, so we did, you know, experiment, and we made the preparations here on our farm, too, um, but I couldn't really see exactly that it was making huge difference. And for us then just to be able to plant on time and weed on time and irrigate on time and harvest on time and deliver things, you know, just to do that well took all our efforts. Um, so we weren't sure if spending the extra time um, with the stirring and, and the applications, whether it would be that beneficial, especially too in a vegetable operation, you're just planting all the time. So it's not like you can go once in the spring, put the 500 or the 501 out there. Right. It's sort of an ongoing, pretty labor intensive process. But I am open to, and I think people should be open to other influences that are out there that, that are hard to either put down into numbers or, or technically, you know, at least sometimes it takes us a while to figure out a language to explain, you know, what is going on in our soil or in our guts for that matter, for our human health. Um, so I think we should always have an open mind to seeing what other people are experiencing and, and learning and, and sharing. I know for me, one, I know I read some of the same books that a lot of us did, whether it's Jevons books and, and of course, Elliot Coleman. He's been a great pioneer in many respects. But Ruth Stout was another one that wrote a bunch of books. Ruth Stout was a gardener and uh, mulched everything super heavily. And uh, she'd always, always have these, and she wrote these fun books. They're just fun to read, even, even not, you know, counting all the gardening advice that you can get from it. But all these extension people would come to her garden and say, oh, no, you can't do that, or that's not going to work, and, and she would prove them wrong, and every time she would get incredibly good produce from just simply mulching all the time. Right. <laughs> and it seems like, I mean, that that sort of paying attention to your environment and, and noticing what works and what doesn't work is something that you guys did early on with your CSA when you guys got started there in 1988, 89. 
you know, most of the CSA models that were out there were very heavily focused on a core group. A lot of them were doing on-farm pickups. And you guys chose to do it, take a little bit of a different route. Yeah, when we visited those other farms, we found, and we went to some of the meetings that they would have at these places. And there were a core group of people. Um, often they were organized by non-farmers to start with. So the farmer was just, you know, added later or hired, you know, to, to manage it. And we liked that idea of a CSA, but here we're moving to a state where neither of us grew up. And in fact, for Brenda, that wasn't even in her home country. And yeah, we wanted to do this, but there wasn't a core group, you know, welcoming us. So um, we had to choose some things that were different from how, how the first ones were set up. And one practical decision we had to make, too, was um, the first CSAs all had bulk distribution on their farm. So people would come and they could choose out things and take, you know, quantities. Um, but we didn't have any pickup sites set up. We didn't have any thing ready to go. So we thought, well, we just have to get the boxes made at the farm and then deliver them and see if, if that would work. And so that's what we started to do. And we've continued that. Once in a while, we play with both this reason on our farm again. But for all the work that it takes to set that up, it's much easier for us to just do a, you know, another bunch of boxes for the farm pickup. Our farm pickup is only, you know, maybe 10% of, of our whole CSA at this point. So that was, uh, yeah, that was one, one thing that we had to do. How much community involvement do you guys have with the CSA? I mean, 800 members, it's it's hard to even keep track of that many people, much less, you know, know them. In the beginning, we really liked the contact. We were kind of new to the area, and we wanted to know the people that bought our food. So we would have monthly um, potlucks and meetings at the farm, something going on, you know, five, six times during the season. And those are all really important to us. After a few years, when we had loyal support, and sometimes we'd get, you know, 60, 80 people coming to these events. And I felt like it's just too much. I can't talk to everybody there. I didn't, and we don't really need it anymore. So we kind of backed off on, on that aspect of it. Um, more recently, you know, we still will have events here at the farm, although we've never really gotten into that like many farms do, you know, whether the pizza night or or something like that. Um, so it's been important to us. The other thing we have is a lot of uh, working members that will help us with the boxing. Boxing, of course, is bagging. It's a big thing. If you're going to pre-box your CSA shares, there's just so much work that goes into that. So we have 60 or so um, members that will come once a week and, and exchange their three hours for, for getting their box. Um, so we have a lot of local people that are involved in that as well. But the RCSA, they have been there for us for a number of reasons. One another, too, that three times during our history, we wanted to buy equipment or invest in something that was more than we could budget over the short term. And we asked our members, hey, could you help us out doing that, either by loaning us money or by buying vegetables for several years in advance? Uh, one time was for the compost turner itself. Another was for the, uh, the PV panels, the photovoltaic solar panels on our roof. Another was for, uh, I think, the uh, one of the speeding machines that we got. But uh, And they, each time they came through. And then some people just donated money, too. They said, oh, no, don't worry about paying back. We we appreciate what you're doing. And, and that was just really uh, great to, to have that support from our members. 
Has there been anything that you've done in particular to cultivate that support among such a large membership? I think most of our efforts were probably more in the first, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, But still now we have a newsletter we send out every week and I, it's not extensive. It's not as beautiful as some, but you know, we honestly say what's going on and they, uh, they feel connected enough and they, and they come back enough. And that's, that's the other thing we probably could have made more money on our farm. If we chosen four or five crops and did a really, really good job with them and, and, and gotten really efficient that way. But because always people came back and they start the season and pay us, you know, we, we just have continued with that CSA model. What kind of a retention rate do you guys have? Um, a few years ago, um, we actually did the numbers and we don't do a lot of software system and we do have small farm central to help us with our web store and stuff, but we don't have it all on spreadsheets as you, uh, so eloquently advocate everybody to doing, but we've even been the 80, 85% return rate. One of the things that was comforting to me was that, uh, when I asked, so we went back and we interviewed all people that didn't come back because this is for a conference or something like that to figure out, you know, what's going on. And then the folks that didn't come back shared many of the common reasons. They, you know, can have forced to buy a box every week. It's not everything that they want in there. Um, they move, they travel. Um, but very few of them said it was the quality of the vegetables or the price that, that was a reason for them not returning. And, and I felt good about that because we always wanted to make our shares something that average folks could afford and we wanted to make our quality good enough that it would sell on its own. So for the most part, you know, the word of mouth has always been our main form of advertising. So we've never had any marketing budget to speak of. In fact, in Milwaukee, we have a uh, event that's held annually now, uh, CSA, you know, meet the CSA in your area event. And for a long time, we were the only farm there. And it was oh, really it was our thing. And now, you know, last 10 or 15 years, we've had 10 or 15 farms there. And for many of the years, too, we didn't even go because we didn't need more members. I just didn't want to spend a day sitting there when, you know, we're going to fill up anyway. Um, but it seems that around here anyway, and it seems like it's the case in the rest of the country, too, the CSA movement maybe has hit a peak and, and it's not as easy to find members. Um, so we did actually go to the event this year and some of the other farms noticed that we were there and we hadn't said anything. Well, what's going on? Spring the farms showing up this year. Might be one of those canaries in the coal mine. One funny um, story that I want to talk about because um, with your stuff, um, you know, with record keeping and knowing what you make money on, in a way, I just want to offer the counter point that like I'm, I'm probably at the far end of the opposite spectrum of what you would suggest to keeping records of everything so you know what's going on. And I, and I think it's a good thing. In fact, you know, becoming certified may be good for me because I know that I'd be forced to keep more records than I do. But just somehow, if you if you end up making a dollars and cents thing, it loses something in me. The inspiration, the the passion for it, you know, kind of dissipates. If you end up thinking, well, it's this person, you know, harvesting 20 pounds of beans an hour or 15 and 
are they worth it or are you making money on it? Um, so I've been less reluctant to to spend a lot of money or a lot of my time, you know, on, on that kind of record keeping. So just that there's another way of, of running a farm that isn't so record keeping oriented. But still, we, we get stuff done. We move a lot of produce through our farm. And you're clearly doing a good job of it and making a living at it, which I think is, I mean, ultimately that's, that's the number that really counts the most. You know, do you have enough that you can, that you can do it again next year and, and stay in it for the long haul? Exactly. That's correct. All right. Before we, before we head to the lightning round to kind of wrap things up, uh, Peter, you were, you told me kind of a funny story about one of my favorite tools uh, while we were, while we were chatting on break. Yes, I was attending a Wisconsin Farmers Union meeting, um, which is actually a great organization. It's a national farmers union organization as well. Um, many people know of the Farm Bureau, which pretty much supports GMOs and sending crops all over the world. And the Farmers Union alternatively supports small family farmers and organic farming and whatnot. So I've been attending a local meeting there and uh because my time is somewhat precious, I always bring reading material with me to such a meeting. And in this case, it was a growing for market publication a year back. And there was an article by Chris Blanchard in there about record keeping. And it was, um, at that point, I was just convinced that, yeah, I need to do better records. And one of the problems is with pens, that I keep losing pens all the time. And you suggested, hey, folks should go out and get a space pen which is a pen that you can write upside down and it's waterproof and whatnot. And uh, I was so excited by that idea. I thought, boy, as soon as this meeting is finished, I'm going to go find me a space pen. Um, well, it turns out at this meeting, they had a little lottery, a little seating giveaway gift, you know, if you, if you pick the right number or something. And sure enough, uh, at that meeting, I, they called my number and uh, they had two gifts they were giving out. One of them was a space pen, and, and they called my number, and then here, you can space pen. So I immediately <laughs> um, materialized that. Has it lived up to its hype? Well, you know, it did for six weeks or eight weeks, but then I lost it. <laughs> 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 I don't know what happened to it, and then I didn't replace it because if I didn't want to lose that one, no, I'll lose another one. <laughs> I know I said that was my last question before the lightning round, but I, I do want to ask you one more because, you know, you guys are up over that that $500,000 in gross sales limit um, that's going to make you guys fully subject to the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule. Um, and I'm curious how you guys are are getting ready for that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's coming down the pipe. Um, we are slowly making all the necessary precautions and, and those paperwork and, you know, Mouse traps and bird netting, if that's going to be, need to be the case, uh, that's going to be required under it. Sometimes I, I have the expectation that the sanity will will reign in the end and, and some of the needless things, um, you know, would not be required. But, but practically, uh, um, yeah, every farm's got to got to do whatever they have to do to comply with, with these things. Um, so we're beginning to make steps, but we're no way, you know, there yet. Um, there's a lot more things we'd have to do. Great. And with that, I'd like to go ahead and turn to our lightning round. Um, 
and start with what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I have the advantage to knowing that this question was going to come up, so I've been able to think a little bit about it. And I have two answers. One, a concrete answer, and the other is a metaphorical answer. We'll start with a practical one. It's a three-way tie. There's three things that I really love on our farm that do a great job. They're pretty simple tools that, 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 that just are fantastic. One is a manure spreader, a compost spreader. Um, it just spreads a nice, even rate of compost, and it does it you know, almost every time, unless I get too many rocks in there and then break the chain or the, <laughs> the point. The other is a planter junior cedar. You know, we've, we've used these for all the years. They just are simple tools. They just get a lot of seed out quickly, and they meter it out. You know, someday we'll advance maybe to a vacuum cedar, but the planter junior is, is a great, simple tool that uh, we would really love. And the last would be the paper pot transplanter that John Hendrickson's bringing over from Japan, where you start these flats in the greenhouse and, and paper cells, and then when it comes time to transplant them, you put one end in, and then you pull this little lightweight hand tool, and then it transplants, you know, a whole flat of 260 cells or so within 45 seconds. Even in gravelly soil, it, it does pretty well. So that was a three-way tie between those three implements. My metaphorical answer is is the heart, I think. Um, my favorite tool with a passion for something you you can keep going and you do things that, that maybe you don't know that you could have done. or And this would be a passion not just for vegetables. I mean, it's really beautiful and fun to produce good-tasting, nutritious food for people. And then you have a passion for people, too. We have employees now that are just wonderful people, and I, I'm kind of devoted to now to try to make more money for the farm so that they can get paid more. And then pass into ideas, too. Some of us are idealists. With a philosophy degree, I continually to use whether Marx had it right that, or Hegel. You know, Hegel was history's best um, construed as the sway of ideas, whereas Marx said, no, it's coming out of the material conditions of people's working and living. That's, that's how history can be characterized. Or the difference between Aristotle and Plato. Plato was an idealist. Well, I'm definitely an idealist, and that idea of the CSA was just such a great idea, and we've kind of used that to, to grow our food for the last almost 30 years. So that would be my my favorite tools for you. That's great. Um, if you could choose a farmer's superpower, what would you choose? No, I think my answer to that would be um, somebody who can understand soils and plants so well that they can see a plant not doing very well and and come up with an answer, either with a little handheld tester or with their just observation, you know, to know exactly what to do to get the situation right. And, and there are other farmers, of course, that are marvels at this, but uh, I've never been able to do that as well. But I, I think that's a great skill to look at a, species of plant or an animal for that matter. I mean, we deal with plants mostly, but animals are, are in our farm environments too. And then just to know exactly what, what that entity would need to thrive. Great. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I think I would tell myself don't be so bashful about asking for help or advice. 
um, so many times we've kind of learned the hard way and there are people out there that, that know a lot more and even though they're busy and, um, I think it's, it would have been, I could have saved many thousands of thousands of dollars, thousands of hours of, of, uh, of time if I had asked for, for example, we bought a big payloader to help make compost and, uh, and it just didn't work out despite a lot of time. And if I just thought about asking Carl Hammer, you know, up in Vermont compost, you know, whether that would have been a good investment, I could have, uh, saved a lot of time. So not being too shy to, to ask for help when you, when you have a burning question that you want. Peter, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing all your, your experience, your expertise. It's, it's really been great to have this conversation with you. You do a great job with it, Chris. I'm uh, happy to be a small part in it. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 67 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Sealy. That's S-E-E-L-Y. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I'd appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions I received through the contact form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>